If you would, please be turning to Psalm chapter 6. And as you're turning there, I'm going to go ahead and jump right into it. Why do we love sad songs and sad movies? Some people, I think, just are like Eeyore, you know, they, they have that kind of melancholy disposition. But even so, even the most bubbly people, they love a well-told and very sad story. Why is that? Maybe we can get to the answer of that if we look at the opposite, we look at the inverse of that. Think about some of your least favorite stories, your least favorite movies. Have you ever watched a movie or read a book and everything goes so well for the main character throughout the entire story that it makes you nauseous? It's just, it's like, I can't, no one's life is like this. I can't get behind this. This is ridiculous. And it's not a good story. I think, then, that we love sad songs and we love sad movies and sad stories in many ways because we can empathize with them. We get it. Life is full of trouble. Life is hard. We want to listen to a story where the hero, he rises above all of that. He endures all the suffering. In the end, he finds happiness because that's what we want. We want to be happy over against all of our suffering. So we don't want a hero who never has to endure anything difficult. We want a hero who endures very difficult things and wins. Most of the Psalms, I think, they scratch this itch. It's been said that the Psalms are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. And since our souls endure lots and lots of trouble, it makes sense then that the Psalms are filled with sad songs. About three-fourths of the Psalms in your Bible are songs of laments. That's not a coincidence. That's not an accident. They're songs of trouble and hardship. And there's psalms of people who are crying out to the Lord to be delivered and to be helped. And there's psalms about trusting in the Lord, the hero who will one day save them. That tells us something, doesn't it? Much of life is lamentable. Much of life is very, very sad. And so God, he wrote the psalms so that we would know how to feel about that. And so that we would know how to pray to God when we are in those moments. So, we have Psalm chapter 6. And it goes like this. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. 
My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all of my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Let's pray for God's help this morning. Holy Father, we ask you would give us wisdom this morning. We ask you would encourage our breaking hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would prepare us for the moments that will certainly come when our hearts will be broken. Lord, I ask you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would open up your people's hearts, that you would do miraculous things this morning through my preaching. And ultimately, Lord, that you would do your people good and glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have an outline for you this morning. It's going to follow the outline of many psalms. That's not an accident. So point number one, David's trouble. Point number two, David's petition. And point number three, David's confidence. David's trouble, David's petitions, David's confidence. Point number one. David's troubles. Some of you this morning may be feeling like life could not be going more smoothly. You're just happy. And that's good. Like, I'm glad. I'm genuinely happy for you. But life in a fallen world uh, inevitably will lead to disaster. Difficulties will come. Suffering will come your way. And so I am pleading you this morning, if that's you, glad you're happy. But be ready because life is hard. Don't tune this out this morning. On the other hand, maybe you're enduring an awful lot of trouble this morning. And uh, suffering has been coming at you thick and fast. And (laughs) you need this psalm. You're ready for this psalm. I'm glad you're here. And I want you to know that this scripture is written especially for you this morning. So here's an overview of David's trouble as we get into this. David's life is being threatened by all of his foes. There are people who want to kill him. And because of that, David is terrified of being sent to the grave. David is afraid not only of dying, but of being dead, never to praise God again. To make matters worse, David is afraid that all of this is happening to him, that these foes have come to him and are trying to kill him, and that he's going to be sent to the grave Because the Lord is angry with him because of his sin. And so he's carrying around this additional weight of a burden for his sin. So there's David. The thought that God in his anger wants to destroy him by the sword of his foes and leave him dead in the ground is devastating to him. Look at the language he uses in verses 6 and 7. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all of my foes. It's an interesting statement. David is weary with moaning. Have you ever cried so much and with so much intensity that you are physically exhausted from it? If I could use an analogy, if you think about a toddler, you know that moment when a toddler knocks their head? And they're silent, and it's an unbearable silence. 
because you know exactly what's about to happen. And then they let it out. They just start screaming. And they're stealing breaths in between their screams. And their, their eyes are, are bloodshot and welled up with tears. And their face is, is deep red. They've lost control. And they're on the ground. And they're flailing. And they do that long enough. It's like they, they become so weary and so physically exhausted that they can't move. They can't even get up. That's being weary with moaning. We've all seen that with a toddler when they bump their head, but it doesn't just happen to toddlers. That happens to adults too. And it doesn't just happen to any adult. That can happen to godly men and godly women. Maybe becoming weary with moaning doesn't happen for you all in one moment, right? But over a long period of time, a lot of different stresses, a lot of things can come against us that physically it can take a toll on our bodies, which is like you're, you're trying to keep your head above water and someone hands you a dumbbell on top of that. It's just, it's just, it just compounds the problem, compounds the pain. David was experiencing one of these periods in his life when he wrote this song. He goes on to describe that he was crying every single night. The original Hebrew paints it vividly. It says, verse 6 could be translated, Every night... I make my bed swim. David, a man's man, is not afraid to admit that in times of trouble like this, he cried a lot. A lot, a lot. Verse 7 says, his eyes starting to waste away because of all his grief. It grows in its weakness. It's kind of a strange term, right? It grows in its weakness. But what he's saying here is he's crying so much He's so stricken with grief that his eyes are starting to feel like they're 100 years old. It's, it's, they're aging faster than time itself. That's how much grief he's going through. Now, in light of all that, what I'm going to say is going to sound very strange, but I think it's true. These verses are comforting. They're comforting. It is okay for you, Christian, to be broken and to be very, very low. It is not a sin to be sad. <laughs> That's comforting. Now, it's true that there are bad reasons to be down. You can be sinfully sad. The fact that you feel sad does not always mean that you have a right to be sad. Sometimes what you need to do is you need to stop feeling bad for yourself. You know, you've got to do the tough work of looking yourself in the mirror and challenging your emotions and attitude. Sometimes that, that has to be done. Sometimes it's necessary. But that being said, there are also many, many good reasons to cry and to be very, very broken in this sad world. The point is this. David, this great man of God, with his great exploits and his, his great faith, he knows what it's like to be devastated and to fill his bedroom with tears. And it's not just David. Paul was, he was the one who wrote, always sorrowful while we were rejoicing. And he lived a very difficult life. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, he goes by the title, Man of Sorrows. Right, we sing that, Man of Sorrows, what a name for a Savior. And he was. He was stricken by grief. He was personally acquainted with all the same struggles and all the same troubles that we went through when he came down to earth in human flesh. He knows that life here is hard. 
Jesus wept. And so can you, brothers and sisters. It's okay to be sad. So what has David so upset then? He tells us in verse 7. He says, My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Okay. We don't know the historical occasion of this psalm, right? there's There's no background given to us. However, we do know, many of us know from the stories of David, that there were two times that he was on the run for his life, that people were trying to kill him. He had many foes. And that was when he was on the run from Solomon and when he was on the run from Absalom. And what that means is, is that he was out in the wilderness. He was sleeping in a cave on a rocky ground. He was facing the elements. And he was afraid, constantly afraid, that at any moment the sword may fall on him. It was terrifying. He was scared. So I know that you aren't weary with, mo- with moaning this morning because someone's trying to kill you with a sword. I know that. But it may be terminal diseases. It may be that you don't know how you're going to pay for rent this month. It may be because You're stuck in that same sin cycle that you've been fighting for years and you're just tired of it. It may be that these things aren't happening to you, but someone that you love so deeply and are close with is going through these things and you're picking up the burden and you're feeling the weight of it. I don't know why you're weary with with mourning uh, this morning, but I want you to know that you're not alone that even great uh, heroes in the Bible have experienced the same thing. Notice also for David that it wasn't only the fear of dying, but also the fear of death that has him so upset. Said another way, David isn't just lamenting that he could be stabbed by his foes, but he is lamenting the fact that he would be dead that he would actually be in the grave, in Sheol, separated from God, unable to praise him. Look at verse four and five with me. He says, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death, there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? You see, David exists to enjoy God and to bring him glory. That is what fills his heart with pleasure. That's what he wants to do. But if David were to die and be left in the grave, a place that is lifeless and cold, the realm of the dead where everything is silent, there is no more enjoying God. There is no more praising God. This is a man who said, better is one day in the court of the Lord than a thousand elsewhere. And now he's facing thousands upon thousands upon thousands of days in the grave. And will never be in the court of God again. This terrifies him. It breaks him down. In the cemetery, there is no singing. There is no dancing. There is no praising God. And David can feel that lifeless reality breathing down his neck. He's just waiting for the sword to fall on him and to sever his relationship with God. Now, clarification needs to be made here. You're probably already thinking it. 
like good biblical Christians. I don't think that these words intend to paint a theologically precise image of how death works, given the nature of progressive revelation. The prophets in the New Testament, they have more to say on on this topic, okay? But David isn't trying to explain the timeline of what happens when you die and then you are in the ground and resurrected uh, on the final day and then you face your final judgment. He's not trying to explain that. That's a topic for another day. But here's what's happening. To the best of David's knowledge and in the middle of his fear and sadness, he knows two things. This is what I want you to get. Number one, that he loves to praise the Lord. And number two, that he never wants to be separated from God. Lifeless. Never able to praise God again. The thought of that causes him to weep so much that his bed swims every night. But even worse, he's still not done. David's trouble is talked about more in verses one through three. Let's read there. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Now, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 in more depth here in a moment. But notice here that David acknowledges that he is suffering because of rebuke and because of discipline. The reason enemies have come against David to do him harm is because he has sinned against God. So not only is he weeping then because of his enemies and because of the fact that he may be put in the grave, but he's weeping because the God whom he loves is the God whom he has offended and who is against him. That's a terrifying place to be. And it drives him to weep a lot. It's guilt for sin that he's enduring. He goes on to say that he's languishing. right? He's, he's drooping like a flower. He's, he's wilting. He can feel that trouble, he says, all the way in his bones. The pain because of the guilt of his sin is heavy. The emotional and spiritual suffering that he is going through is causing him physically to hurt in his bones. It's kind of like the, the, the ache and the fatigue you feel if you have the flu. Right? We've all been here too. Think back to those moments where you gratified the flesh. You took a look at something you knew that you shouldn't. You began to gossip In a moment, even though your conscience was right there saying, don't do it, don't say it, but you said it anyways. You're driving on the road and you get angry at somebody and you do something you shouldn't do. And when that happens, immediately you feel this burden, like a cement block, just come down and sit on your chest. Or for some of us, we just get this nauseous, sick feeling in our stomach. it's, It's all the way down deep and... Your face goes into your hands and you start to shake your head and you just think to yourself, what is wrong with me? I've sinned against the God that I love. It's one of the worst feelings in the world. It can go on for days. For my unbelieving friends, I just want to pause. I just want to add. I want to ask you, why do you think this happens to you? 
Why do you constantly have to preach to yourself? No regrets. No regrets. Why can't you just live your life the way that you want to live it and be happy without your conscience butting in all the time and saying, don't do this or don't do that? Why does that happen? Well, I contend with you this morning that that happens because God is telling you to come and deal with him. Friend, that voice will not always call out to you. It will not always warn you of the danger that you are in. Listen to that voice. Go to God and deal with him before it's too late. So we see then, in summary of David's troubles, that David is burdened by his guilt and he's carrying around the weight that God, whom he loves, is coming after him to destroy him by the sword, to leave him in the grave where David will never praise God again. This has led David to be weary with mourning. Which brings us to point number two, David's petition. One of the most difficult things about pain and suffering for human beings is it it reminds us that we're not uh, self-sufficient. We're not fully capable to handle everything that life throws at us. That reality comes crashing through the door when your life starts falling apart and you begin to suffer. When this happens to David, though, he does what we all should do. He goes to God and he petitions him or asks him to do him good. Notice in verses 1 and 2, let's read them. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Notice that David isn't asking God to stop disciplining him or to stop rebuking him. Rather, he is asking that he would not discipline him in his anger and wrath. Now that's key. It's as if David is saying, God, I'm not asking you to spare the rod, but please spare the sword. Now, that's amazing already because the one whom David is afraid of is the one whom David goes to, to cling to, to ask for help. He feels in this moment that the Lord is trying to crush him. But where else does David have to go? There is no other refuge. There is no other person out there who loves him and who could love him and who could solve this problem for him. And so even in his suffering, he goes to God and clings to him. I just want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, when it feels like God is far away, when it feels like God is even against you, go to him. Draw near to him. He turns towards his people. He loves a broken and contrite heart. He will receive you and he will lift you up. It's amazing that David goes to God in this circumstance. And so he prays, as I've said, not that he would stop disciplining him, but that he would discipline him just without anger or wrath. And he says that because discipline is a good thing, right? We, we read about that in Hebrews chapter 12 just a couple weeks ago. Recall that being disciplined by God is, is positive. God, when he disciplines his people, he does it perfectly. It always works out for their good. 
It's proof of your adoption. It's proof that you belong to God, that you would ever be disciplined by the hand of God. And if you'll be trained by it, it'll make you more righteous. And we could just go on and on. Discipline is a good thing. However, if God's rebuke and his discipline comes down upon you, but not in fatherly love, but instead in just anger, what are you going to do? How are you going to withstand that? If God moves to punish you not as a son, but as an enemy, you won't be corrected. You will be destroyed. And that's what David's feeling in this moment, that God is against him. So he goes to him and he says, Lord, don't treat me like an enemy. Treat me like a son. Don't take away your rod, but Lord, take away the sword. That's what he's praying. But here's the question before us. As you you think about it, if you just pause, this is an astonishing moment that David is even praying this prayer. David, aren't you loved by God? Aren't you a man after his own heart? Why, if God disciplines those he loves, does David feel like God is not disciplining him as a son, but that God is trying to destroy him as an enemy? I think it's this. In the midst of pain, David thinks that God is against him because it's not always obvious when you're being disciplined that something good is happening to you. It doesn't always feel like love. Sometimes discipline feels a lot like hatred. That's what David is experiencing. By the end of the psalm, he looks back on it and he recognizes that the Lord was disciplining him in his love. But in the moment, he's not so sure. Lord, I I feel like you're trying to cut me down and kill me. I just love that this psalm gives us permission, even encourages us to pray to God like that. Like David can be so real with his feelings that I'm pretty sure God loves me, but Lord, don't destroy me like an enemy. I think we know by experience already how that can happen, right? How we can misunderstand discipline to be hatred. No one likes discipline in the moment. So when someone is disciplining you, your thought is, is they're intentionally putting me through something that they know I don't like. How can that be love? Well, it is love. For example, as a child, when you wandered into the road for the first time, and your parent ran out there and they, and they pulled you up and then they wore you out, right? That child is not thinking, man, dad sure does love me. No. Why are you doing this to me? Why do you hate me? The child might be thinking. In the same way, it's not always obvious to us that the trials that we are enduring are actually proof that God loves us and that God is doling them out for our good And that he is doing it because he's rich in love. When you think back to the way that your parents disciplined you, you you know that now. You know that that was a sign of love and not of hatred. I think that's what's happening here. Now another clarification needs to be made. While not a single drop of pain is outside of God's sovereign hand, not every single pain that comes to you is a consequence of your sin. I'm going to say that again. No drop of pain is outside of God's sovereign hand, but not every drop of pain that comes to you is a result or consequence of your sin. All right, we know this from the study of Job. 
okay? Some 30-odd chapters are devoted to the idea that why is this righteous man of God, who before God is righteous, suffering so much? And then God shows up in a cloud and he lectures Job for several chapters and the essence of it is boiled down to this. I'm God, Job. That's why. Wow. Romans chapter 11 says it this way. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So, I can't speak confidently as to why you were suffering the way that you were suffering this morning. It may be that you are being disciplined by a loving father. It may be that you're still living in the world and that you are under the wrath of God and that you have been handed over to Satan and there is no redeeming quality to your suffering other than the fact that you will be crushed. Or it may be that God is not telling you why and he's not giving you an answer beyond I'm God, I'm sovereign, I'm always working for your good. Trust me. Now, there can be an advantage in trying to work out why you are suffering. This psalm is exactly that. David is trying to work out why he is suffering, and he's praying to God about it. So that's, there, there can be some use to that. I can't perform heart surgery on everyone this morning from this pulpit, but I can give you some tips, Okay. There's value in uh, praying prayers like this consistently. The Psalms are full. They're just full of prayers like this that are so helpful in moments of suffering to try to grasp why am I suffering the way that I'm suffering, okay? Another one that's just really simple, it's, it's basic, but we just, it's so useful. Talk to people who love you and who will give you honest feedback. Go to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Go to your parents. Go to uh, um, your, your pastor, go to any other Christian, just go talk to people who are going to be honest with you and who love you and who are going to help you understand why you're suffering. Now, through those ordinary means of grace, God may see fit to give you insight into why you were suffering. And he may not. I would even say, as a general rule, you usually won't get to the bottom of it, not in any sort of surefire way. But here's the other key that I want to get from this, from Psalm chapter 6. This is a beautiful thing. You don't always have to get it right. You don't. In this psalm, as I've already said, David has a suspicion that he's being disciplined in wrath, that he's not being treated like a son, and he's worried that he's being treated like an enemy. And just like the child is getting torn up, they're pretty sure that their dad hates them. But in reality, that doesn't change the fact that God does love David. Or that the parent does love the child. The truth is, is they're still disciplined. They still grow in righteousness. They are still protected and being loved. And in the end, they're going to look back on that moment and be thankful to God. That's, that's so freeing to me. I, I could be totally wrong about why I'm suffering and it will still do me good. God is just, I, I can't overcome God's desire to love me and do me good. There's just, there's so many saints who have lived their whole life never believing that God truly loved them and was truly for them, was truly working through their good. They just couldn't get it through their head that their suffering was not because God hated them. But the gospel was still in their lips. They still believed and trusted in the blood of Christ. And I believe that for many of those saints, that still didn't separate them from the love of God. You don't have to get it right. 
It's okay. There's freedom in that. Okay, let's go a little further. After pleading with God not to discipline him in his wrath, we see that David makes his plea with God to turn, to deliver him, to save him. And he roots that plea or that petition in this. He says, God, in verse 2, he says, be gracious to me. In verse 4, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. You see that? David is asking God to treat him better than he deserves. He knows that when he goes to God and prays to him, that God owes him nothing. And that's surprising. It strikes me as surprising for a moment that this righteous man who loves the Lord, who has done so many great things, has to ask God to treat him better than he deserves. But it's true. David knows. He knows that he doesn't deserve to be treated like a son. And neither do you and I. It's the amazing thing. But he knows also that he can go to the Lord and pray to him to treat him better than he deserves. He can ask him, God, would you be gracious to me? Would you abound in your steadfast love for me? And if you will do that, I won't be crushed. I'll be saved. And so he does. You and I, friends, we need the same treatment. You need grace. If you are still in the clutches of a just and wrathful God, you should be mourning. You should be crying and become weary with mourning. Let your, your laughter be turned to crying. Let your joy turn into sorrow. Because one day, because of your sin, you will die and you will stand before God and he will judge you and you will not survive that judgment. You will not have a case and you will justly be separated from God and you will be condemned to hell. But if we would just cry for the right reasons, if we would just be broken for the right reasons, if you would mourn, then you would know also that Christ came to save those who weep and to save those who are mourning. The good news is that God so loved the world that he sent his only son. He lived a perfectly righteous life. He was the only one that ever deserved to be treated like a son. He did nothing worthy of discipline. He was holy and he was perfect. Nevertheless, he took on our sins and he went to the cross and he bore them. He bore the wrath and the anger of God that David deserved and that you and I deserve. And he was killed. And he was buried. He was sent to Sheol. He was separated from God the Father. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? In this way, he died the death that we deserved. But the father did not finally forsake him. He did not leave him in the grave. And three days later, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And he ascended into heaven. And he is at the right hand of God, making intercession 
for all of those who will repent of their sins and trust in his blood and be saved. And God will judge those who trust in his blood, not according to their sins, but according to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If David saw this from afar and he was saved, how much more can we who know his name call out to him, Jesus Christ, save me. I'm turning from my sins and I'm trusting in your blood. Only you can lift up my head. We can be saved. And you will know what it's like not to be afraid of your guilty conscience or to be afraid of the foes who are going to come against you and to destroy you because you won't be left in Sheol and you will be treated with fatherly love, not the anger and wrath that you deserve from God. So in the midst of David's troubles and weeping, he reached out to God. He threw himself on his steadfast love and on his grace and asked for deliverance. Which leads us to the third point, David's confidence. And I'll just say, my favorite point. I love that so many psalms of lament include stanzas of praise. That's astonishing. Christians are weird creatures, if you think about it. He's crying so much, and yet by the end of the psalm, he's rejoicing. Verse 8 through 10 read like this. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Do you see how the tenor of the psalm has completely shifted? By verse 8, fear is turned into confidence. Trouble is turned into victory. And shame has turned into glory. Why? Because David knows that the Lord hears the sound of his weeping, that he hears his prayer, and that he accepts his prayer. Notice the verb tense in this text. He has already heard my weeping. He has already heard my plea. He is accepting my prayer. It's a done deal. It's, it's happened. Brothers and sisters, the Lord hears you when you pray. He hears you when you weep. That's such good news. Therefore, David knows his prayer has been accepted, which has given him a future confidence. Verse 10 says it this way, All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. I love the, the word play in this verse. Did you see the reversal of what's happening here? Back in verse 3 and 4, David thinks that God has turned away from him. And his enemies are causing his soul great trouble, he says. But here the roles are switched. The Lord turns towards his children to do them good. And the wicked shall turn back. And those who were causing David to have a greatly troubled soul, now they're enduring great trouble. And that those who were causing David to be ashamed, now they are going to experience shame. That's awesome. As I've already mentioned, I know your enemies this morning aren't carrying a sword. But Satan has as many devices 
Our bodies are indwelled with sin and entrenched in spiritual warfare. Disease and sickness plague this cursed world. The last enemy, death, is just around the corner for us all. But have confidence, brothers and sisters, because the Lord will turn towards you on that final day and all of our enemies will scatter like cockroaches. It's going to happen. It's coming. Satan and his minions will be tossed into the lake of fire and our bodies will be raised up new without stain of sin or any remnant of disease. No more strife, no more temptation. And the last enemy to be defeated will be death itself. We'll be immortal. It's no wonder that the Psalms of Lament so often end with praise. Which brings us to one last point. There's one more thing that needs to be said. Looking at verse 3. It's just kind of tucked away. It's a quick little aside. In the Hebrew, it's, it's, just, it's almost not even a sentence. It's just, Lord, how long? I wonder if you feel that way. <laughs> I feel that way. I feel that way very often. We live in the age of the already and the not yet. God has already secured your salvation in Christ, but we still have to wait for the consummation of that salvation. He's already accepted us as children, but we have to wait for the last day when the clouds will be rolled back like a scroll and he will finally and fully turn towards us. He's already accepted our prayers, but we are waiting for him to judge all of our foes. In the meantime, we ask, how much longer? How much longer? For David, I'm sure he felt like it would never end. Maybe you feel like salvation is lingering this morning. It's okay to feel that way. It's okay to feel that way and for it to absolutely break your heart and to, and to cause you to weep. It's okay to ask how long because he's still going to come. He's going to come and your weeping will certainly be turned to rejoicing and the humbled will absolutely be exalted in heaven. And oh, what a day that will be. Let's pray.